You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So, did you guys catch the, the popcorn and candy on your way in? Anyone slightly wondering what the theme is for today? All right. That's all louder in the microphone than I anticipated. Sorry. All right. I'll, I'll stop eating the popcorn. Um, so, we have a movie theme today. All right, so many times throughout my ministry, I've heard people say, oh, I would like to read the, the Bible, but it just seems boring. I just can't get into it. And yet, we love movies, right? Everyone loves going to movies, either going to the theater or renting a red box or curling up and watching Netflix. We love movies, right? And I think we love about movies is we get to kind of dive into a different world, dive into something that we're not expecting, dive in for even just for two hours that we can be in a different place, that we can be a different person. And so this morning, I want to ask you to dive in with me, all right? We're going to be in chapter 23 of the book of Acts, 23 and 24. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open it to to that section, and we're going to dive in. But we're going to do it kind of a little different, all right, in light uh, of Halloween coming up this week, in light of this idea that we can dive into this. We're going to see this through the eyes of a movie. Movie theaters will often try to make sure that they have various different genres, right? You got the romance movie for a good date night. You got action movies um, for a guy's night out. And a theater will want to incorporate all these different genres, horror movie and all this, at the same time. So that way you're reaching out to, to every demographic, every type of moviegoer will want to go to that theater. And so it's a big goal to have various kinds of genres at the same time. Well, this story has all these genres, all right? We're about to dive into the story as when we were planning this, uh, we, we meet as a creative team and look at six weeks out. Elliot brought this up. He said, I love this story. And, and when I first saw it, I was like, all right, well, it's a good story, but why do you love it? And he said, this is like a movie. He goes, you'll never believe all the different genres in this one story. And so as we dove into it, I realized he's right. This is amazing. So if you are ready, we are going to dive into Acts 23, starting in verse 12. And we're going to be looking at the genre of a mafia movie. All right? So, that's right. We have theme music as we dive in. We have a mafia outfit. I had thought about getting a cigar, but I don't know how to hold a cigar. Or I've never smoked anything, so I thought I'd look like an idiot if I had this hanging out in the wrong way. So, we got the mafia. All right. Every good mafia has a hit job, right? Every good mafia has this conspiracy, even sometimes a blood oath. All right. And you know, you get a little mafia. I don't know how to do mafia. All right. Um, so you got Godfather, Goodfellas, Scarface. These are movies that are just epic movies, movies that people love. That if you ask a lot of, a lot of people, especially guys, what's the best movie? Godfather. They always come back to Godfather. And, and so you got this idea of this mafia movie where there's this conspiracy and, and this hit job and this desire to take someone out. And that's what we see here at the beginning in 23, verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy, the mafia, formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. All right, so if you haven't been with us the past couple weeks, let me bring you up to speed. Paul was in the temple, just minding his own business, worshiping, and a group of people jumped him. They took him out, and they began to beat him. They began to beat him, kick him, stone him, trying to kill Paul right then and there. The government hears about this. The Roman government comes, and they bring in soldier after soldier and squelch this riot. 
And they save Paul, and while he's being beaten, and he's bloodied, but they take him and they put him in the barracks. The next morning, they have a time where they go and they have this kind of courtroom, and uh, the commander has Paul and the Sanhedrin come together. And the Sanhedrin is trying to say why we want to get rid of Paul, why why he deserves to die. Instead, a riot breaks up among the Sanhedrin between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're upset at each other, and they start fighting each other. And so that just chaos, and the, their commander is so worried about Paul's safety at this point that he's going to be ripped apart, and that they take Paul away. And so now he's put in prison, and so you have this group of men. They've tried jumping Paul. They've tried taking him by force. They've tried doing it through uh, talking to the commander and through the, the court channels, through the Sanhedrin, and none of that has availed, and they got to get rid of Paul. And so these 40 men create this oath, this blood oath, that they are going to not eat or drink until Paul is dead. Now, the significance of this, if you were to have an oath in this time, this is significant because with an oath meant there was also a curse. That if you didn't fulfill this oath, you would be cursed. So they've said, we will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. And so if they break that oath, if one of them finally eats, if one of them finally drinks and Paul isn't dead, then a curse comes upon them and upon their family for five generations after. So this is a big deal. We read it that they made an oath, and it just sounds like, ah, they all made a promise and a pact, put their hands in there, yeah, kill Paul. And it's not like that, right? It was much more serious. They've made a commitment that for generation after generation, a curse will be upon us if we don't kill Paul before we eat and drink. And so you got this oath, and you got this, this thing going on, and, the, and so they try to figure out, how are we going to get this done? And so they go to... The authorities, believe it or not. Verse 14. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So they asked the Sanhedrin to ask for Paul to be brought in, and on the process of bringing him in, they're going to jump him, they're going to overthrow the guards that are watching him, and kill him right then and there. If you were planning to kill someone, if you had a group that you're, you're mafia, who are you going to go to? Probably not the authorities, unless the authorities are corrupt as well. The mafia always has a link in with the authorities, Right? And so they go to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin, the people that are supposed to be the religious leaders, the people that are supposed to be guiding and protecting, are corrupt as well. And so they go to these guys and say, hey, why don't you come on board with our little plot? Invite Paul to come, ask the commander to bring Paul in, and we'll kill him right then and there. And as crazy as you read this story, you would think one person would object. One person out of 70 religious leaders in Jerusalem would say, no, this isn't right. But no one says anything. They all agree. Let's take him out. And so they make this plan with the Sanhedrin that they're going to be able to take him out as he comes. So now we get to the next change in the genre, right? We have a spy movie. There's many great spy movies. And the best is James Bond. That's right. We got many great spy movies. We we have... Austin Powers and Johnny English, if you like the comedy type, or you have Mission Impossible, or, of course, James Bond. This is the closest thing I have to looking like a cool spy, 
All right, and so this is my spy outfit, my spy motif, and you're about to see that we have a spy amongst the group in Jerusalem. And so, but when the son, verse 16, but when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, Paul's, Paul's nephew. We've never heard anything about Paul's family. It makes me question, I have all these questions running through, like how, what other family did he have? Is Jerusalem full of his family? What did they think of Paul? Did they think like he's that crazy uncle that's super extreme? Or were they proud of him? Were they Christians themselves? I don't know. It doesn't say what Paul's nephew believes, but he does say that Paul heard about it and figures out he's got to do something. How did he hear? We don't know. He's just a young kid, but you got to imagine there's these 40 men that have made this oath, and they've gone to the Sanhedrin, and, and so dinner comes, and they made an oath not to eat or drink, and dinner comes, and the little kids ask, Mom, where's Daddy? Is Daddy coming to dinner? And they say, no, no, he's not coming. He's not going to eat with us for a while. Why? Because he's made an oath not to eat until he takes out that bad man that came to Jerusalem. And so after dinner, the kids go and they leave and they meet up with their other friends and, and they say, did you hear about the bad man? And they say, did you hear about my daddy's part of this plot too? And so is mine. And the word spreads and eventually it gets to a little boy that's connected to that bad man, to Paul's nephew. Paul's nephew hears this and, and can you just imagine how scared he would be? There's this plot among the religious leaders, among those 40 men that are willing to curse their families before Paul is dead. Don't you think that little boy's life would be in jeopardy too, now that he knows? If he tries to do anything to put an end to this, he could die, but he's willing to step forward. And when he thinks, what should I do? Naturally, he thinks, Paul will know. Let me go talk to Paul. And so it says that he went to the barracks and he told Paul. And Paul then relays the message out. It says, verse 17, Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell them. I love this. That Paul now has a relationship already with, with the guards. you got to think that Paul's been telling them about Jesus. Paul's been sharing his love with them. Even in the midst of despair, in the midst of a, of a jail cell, he's been telling the guards, and he's developed a relationship with the guards, so that he can say, Hey, this is my nephew. Take him to the commander. Trust me. He's got something to share. And so, verse 18, so he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Notice that this is still the authority now. It's not just on this young man, but on Paul. They obviously already have great respect for Paul. That his weight, as a, even as a prisoner, is influential. And they're able to say, hey, Paul says we should hear about what this guy has to say. Verse 19, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give it to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Obviously, he's seen that the gossip spreads quick, that this little boy was already able to hear this. So he says, don't tell anyone because we don't want to alarm the, the mob, alarm the mafia that we know what's going on. And so a new plan has hatched. This new plan uh, leads to another genre. You have the political thriller. All right? Every good political thriller, such as 
uh, Ides of March, The Bridge of Spies, Enemy of the State. You got an intense movie where you're looking for uh, the political people are looking to take their influence and to go far. They're usually often trying to cover up mistakes that they made and influence other people to get on their side, right? You got um, this influence. I, I thought that political people looked really smart, so I have a pair of glasses. There we go. All right? And so you got politicians that are trying to influence, trying to use their power, trying to manipulate, and we have the same thing in this story. Remember the, the past. Now you have the commander who didn't know who Paul was. He actually thought Paul was an Egyptian terrorist, right? We talked about that several weeks ago, this misidentification. He has no clue who Paul was, and he even has him ordered to be flogged. At the last minute when he's about to be flogged, he finds out that Paul is a Roman citizen. The commander could have lost his position. The commander could have been then flogged had he done this to Paul. And so the commander sends this letter, and he comes up with this plan. Verse 23 says, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at, at 9 tonight. Provide a horse so that Paul may be taken safely to Governor Felix. So, so he creates this idea, and he says, okay, and now the Romans, if they did anything, they did it big, right? Do, go big or go home. And so and they're just trying to protect Paul from this mob. He, they gather 470 soldiers and horsemen, and then one extra horse for Paul to go to Governor Felix. And so they take this group, and he wrote, uh, verse 25, he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. All right, that's not exactly how it went down, if you remember from, from the chapter before. He came and just stopped the riot, later found out after he was about to flog him that he was a Roman citizen. But the political aspect, he, over, he covers up a few things. I wanted, to know, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against them that deserved death or imprisonment. As we've been following the book of Acts, if you've been here this year, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll see this over and over and over again. This is what the court has always found, that this is a question dealing with the Jewish law, but Paul hasn't done anything to break the Roman law. Time and again, he's been set free because he hasn't broke any laws. We see the same thing, the same story in Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica, even a version of this in Ephesus. It's the same thing over and over, and now this is written in a letter. Verse 30 continues, When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So this letter has been written, and it's making uh, the, the commander look really good, right? He's making it to cover up the things and to have this political intrigue and try to, to work his way up the, the line. Eventually, Governor Felix will move up the ladder or be removed, and the commander would like to take his spot. So they're always trying to compliment one another and to cover up any mistakes that they've made. And so they put together this letter, they put together this group, and they're about to go at nine and night. What's that sound like? That's right, the cavalry. We have a posse getting together, and we have a Western movie in the makes, right? And so we have a Western movie. And so 
We got 470 people. We got 200 soldiers. We have 200 people on horseback. We ha or 200 spearmen. We have 70 people on horseback, including Paul himself. And we have now a western. All right? And so we have verse 31. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought them as far as Antipyrus. And so the soldiers make it to the halfway point. From there, they turn around. So you see all the, think about this night. You're there, part of the crowd of 40. You, they've made this oath and you're trying to figure out and you're just waiting for the commander to, to bring, to ask Paul to be sent to meet the Sanhedrin. They're waiting. They're waiting to anticipate, to jump Paul, no matter what guards are around him, to attack him. And they hear a commotion. In the barracks of the soldiers, they're starting to gather. They're collecting their, their swords, their spears. They're putting on their armor. The horses are getting mounted. You hear this commotion. 470 soldiers isn't a quiet thing. And so they send, uh, they send a lookout and to report back, and they come back and give the worst possible notice. They have Paul. In the middle of this group, they have Paul. And so these 40 men quickly try to figure out, can we jump him? Can we do something? How are we going to capture him? We've made an oath. And the commander made sure that he would be safe. So you have Paul in the middle of this entire group of cavalry, and then a group of spearmen, and then a group of soldiers. These 40 aren't going to penetrate all that. And so now these 40 are dealt with. We've made an oath. Does that mean a curse is going to come upon us? And so they're left with this confusion. And so the soldiers take him as far as Antipyrus. And then they turn around and they come back. And the spearmen come back. But the cavalry continues on with Paul. Verse 32 says, The next day they let the cavalry go with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what providence he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia... He said, I will hear your case when your accuser gets here. Because that was part of the area that he was over, right? Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Oh, what a crazy night. Can you imagine Paul? Just two days ago, he was worshiping. He was free. He was worshiping in the temple, and then he's beaten. And he's still recovering from that, beat, from that beating, and he's still recovering wounds that are open and bloody. And he's been presented before the Sanhedrin, and they begin to fight, and they begin to pull on him, and they're so worried that he's going to die right there that they take him into custody again. And then he sits all day, and he hears of a plot to kill him. And you got to wonder, what was Paul thinking when he heard about this plot? Because remember in verse 12 of this chapter, Jesus has come to him and said, just as you witness in Jerusalem, you're going to witness in Rome. So he knew that he would be safe somehow from this plot. But he also knew he didn't want to test the Lord. So he sends his, son, his nephew to go report this to, to the leadership. And the leadership gathers. I can't imagine Paul would have ever imagined 470 people are taking this prisoner to Governor Felix, right? And so they go and they get there. And now Paul is held captive in the Herod's palace. It's a pretty nice place to be compared to being dead by a mob, right? He's in the palace, which is on the sea, and he's overlooking the sea. And there he sits, and he waits. And he waits for his trial. And we get to verse 24, and, and I'll quickly summarize much of what happened in verse 24. But basically, it's a court scene. And you know what a court scene is. 
another genre, right? We have a court drama. We got movies like A Few Good Men. You got My Cousin Vinny. You got all kinds of good movies. Or Law and Order. I know that's not a movie, but really, is there a better court show than, than that? And so you got a court scene, and you have a lawyer present. And so the, the Jews send a lawyer, their top lawyer, to go and present to Governor Felix about their case. And he presents his case, and he butters up the governor, and he tells him all these wonderful things, and then he presents his case in, verse, in chapter 24, but this case is full of holes. This case doesn't really present anything that Paul has done. The initial charge was that he was brought a Gentile into the temple. That's not even mentioned in chapter 24. And so he presents his case, and then Paul has an opportunity. And Paul defends himself. Paul doesn't bring in a lawyer like the Jews did. Paul defends himself, and he tells Governor Felix, I know you're a wise man, and you're going to hear the truth. Yes, I'm a Jew that has converted and is following the way. But I've done nothing wrong. I've shared about Christ to the Gentiles, and I've shared about Christ to the Jews. But I haven't broken any of their laws. The things that they've proclaimed that I've done, I haven't done. And so we can see this in court battle preside. And then we get to verse 22. It says, Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, so he already knows about Christianity, right? He already knows about Jesus. It doesn't say that he's a believer, but it does say he's familiar. Adjourn the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and, per and permit his friends to take care of him and his needs. So now Paul has the freedom in Herod's palace, where his friends come and care for him all along. Verse 24 says, Several days later, Felix came with his, with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him and spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porticus Fistus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. For two years, he's still residing in prison. Remember that promise, just as you testified to me in, in Jerusalem, you're going to testify me in Rome. I got to think for two years, he woke up thinking, today's the day I'm going to get free. Today's the day I'm headed to Rome. And for two years, he'd go to bed that night, maybe disappointed, maybe wondering if he was crazy for thinking that he heard Jesus that time, maybe wondering what was God's plan. And the next morning, he'd build himself up, today's the day, and he'd go to bed the next night. For two years, this occurs, that he's held in the prison. So we got all these genres. We say, people say, oh, the, the Bible's boring, I can't read it. Let me tell you, there's some good stuff. It just depends on what you get out of it. There's all these genres in a movie, but the one genre that we didn't touch on is the genre of a hero. And that's what we see all throughout the book of Acts. There's, there's big heroes, there's superheroes that you know, but there's also the little heroes, the side heroes that we don't often think about that I love to see. Heroes like R2-D2, all right? You, you might think, there you go, you might think that R2-D2 isn't much of a hero, but when I was, when I was reading, 
R2-D2, without him, the Trade Federation would have not would have prevailed. Obi-Wan, Anakin, Luke, and Leah would all have been killed, and the Death Star would not been of not been of would not have been defeated, and Han Solo would have gotten vaporized for real. All if it wasn't for the unsung hero of R2-D2, right? And so as you think about hero movies and these unsung heroes like R2-D2, you have opportunities to see people or robots <laughs> that you wouldn't have thought was the main limelight. And that kind of comes to this, as we're getting close to, to capping off the book of Acts, that's kind of been the story for the past year as we've looked at it. It's constantly unsung hero after unsung hero after unsung hero. Sure, you got the stories of Peter and Paul, you got the stories of, uh, of James, and you got these grand stories, but, but without the unsung heroes, those guys wouldn't have been able to spread the gospel. In truth, without those unsung heroes, those guys might have died. It's because of those guys and those ladies that the gospel is able to prevail in the book of Acts. Let me give you a couple. In, in chapter 6, we see the five deacons step up and, and allow the, the disciples to go and preach. And, these, and these, these deacons step up and they're willing to care for the widows. And they're willing to do all the service-oriented things to allow the message to expand. In chapter 9, we have Ananias, uh, who comes and, and is willing to go and meet with Paul. Everyone's terrified of Paul, who at that time was Saul, the Christian killer. And he hears God tell him to go, and he goes. He boldly goes. In chapter 10, we have Cornelius, who's willing to accept Jesus Christ and, and invite Peter over. There was always a, this rift between the Gentiles and the Jews. And just as it was a big deal for Peter to go, it was a big deal for the Gentile to invite the Jew over. And so you have Cornelius invite Peter over and accept Jesus Christ. And because of that, we see that the gospel explodes to the Gentiles as everyone realizes that the Holy Spirit will come to them as well. You have Rhoda, the slave girl in chapter 12. I don't know if you remember that story. Peter has been released from prison. He escapes. An angel comes and frees him. And Peter's knocking at the door, and everyone in the house church is praying, and everyone at the house church is terrified of the person on the other side of the door. They think that it's intruders. They think that it's soldiers coming to kill them. He got a little slave girl who's confident that it's Peter, and she opens the door. She saves Peter's life. You have Lydia in chapter 16, who is the cause of starting the church in Philippi. Because she gives over her house, she gives over her business, she, she follows Jesus Christ, she follows Paul's teaching about Jesus Christ. You have Jason in chapter 17, this is my favorite one, because all he does is open his house. And Paul's able to preach, Paul's able to be safe. By opening his house, he ends up being persecuted, he ends up being on trial. But all he did was let someone sleep on the floor, and he made a big impact for the gospel. And now in this chapter, we have Paul's nephew, a little kid who heard a rumor about a certain death of his uncle. And this little kid was willing to be bold and take action. And so as we've looked at this chapter, it's been fun. There's a lot of different genres, but, but the bigger point is this whole book of Acts has all these little characters that have made it so the gospel has spread. At this point, it's spreading to all of Asia. And at this point, there are many hundreds and thousands of Christians that have, have given their faith over that are now witnessing to their family members and so forth, all because of these unsung heroes. And that leads us to today. 
A lot of times people say, oh, I, I could never be up on stage and sing like, like the band. I don't have that gift. I don't have that, that ability. But it's not about that. The person that's teaching my little four-year-old about Jesus this morning, that's the unsung heroes. The person that is a teacher at school and is walking the kids through the hardships of life, when they find out that their kids are getting, that their parents are getting divorced and, and everything's falling apart and that teacher loves on that child with Christ's love. That's the heroes. The people that are willing to be a witness to their neighbors, to their coworkers, to their fellow students, that's the unsung heroes in this story, in this grand story, this grand plot of God's story. And so we say it many times, discover your place in his story. R2-D2's place wasn't a big one, right? It's not as important and flashy as Luke, you wouldn't think. But until you step back, you realize so many things couldn't happen without R2-D2. And I want to encourage you. The impact you could make is well beyond anything you could imagine. The impact you would make is you bring one person to Christ, and maybe they'd bring their family and the generations to come, all because you were willing to share over at lunch about why Jesus is in your heart. And so as we look at God's story, I want us to realize he's given us an opportunity to be part of that story. You are part of that story. I want to close, if you will, stand with me and I'll close us in a prayer that we could just pray and lift this morning up to, the rest of this morning up to him who is the ultimate hero who died for our sins and rose again. And we have an opportunity to be part of that story. If you'll pray with me. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love and care. Lord, we just pray that as you, as you're present here this morning, that we would come to you. And that we could be part of your story. That you would help us see how we could do that. That you could help us see how we could be part of a grander story. That we could play a role that is significant because it is your story. Yeah, this time we have here on earth is not long. And if we focus our own, on our own story, it'll, it'll be short, brief, and insignificant. But if we focus on your story, yeah, even the minor roles like Jason, who opened his home, make a huge impact. God, I pray that you touch our hearts and our minds this morning, that right now, this moment, present us with an opportunity that we could be like Jason, that we could do the little things that will spread your word. God, place that on our heart on what we could do this week, what conversation we could have, who we need to talk to, what we need to do to be part of your story. We lift this up in your name.